Uh, but it is certainly a privilege today to be able to introduce the next couple speakers. Uh, we have Ben Brown from the University of Missouri, who is going to come up and give us a, an outlook on grain. And we have Dr. Scott Brown, who's going to come and give us an outlook on, on livestock. And many of you know Ben and Scott. They are not father-son. They are not uh, brothers. <laughs> as much as they look alike, right? I mean, look at them. They do kind of resemble each other, right? But we're very fortunate to have them with us today. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Ben and Scott uh, as a part of the University of Missouri. Uh, and we're very, very fortunate to have the partnership and relationship with them. The, the Farm Bureau partnership we have with them is phenomenal. And I'd like at this time to welcome Ben Brown. <laughs> All right, thank you, Devin. Much appreciated. Howdy, folks. It's a great day to study the economics of agriculture. Amen? Amen. All right, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. You know, Devin mentioned Scott and I. Um, right before I came up, I told Scott, I said, I think we've confused enough people across the state that people really just don't know if we're related anymore. They, they can't tell one way or the other. So I'm very excited to be here. Missouri is my home state, so I'm excited to be back here in Missouri. Bates County is my, my home county. We got a little pod of them over here. Yes, yes, we represent. Um, I'm actually Garrett Hawkins' neighbor, actually, from Appleton City. So I have a little connection down here. My parents are. I guess not me anymore. But I'm going to talk about grain markets today, grain and oil seeds, specifically corn and soybeans. If you have other questions about other crops or want to talk about uh, you know, some of the fundamental things that we just don't have time to talk about, I think we're going to do questions afterwards, and I'm happy to answer questions during that time. But this is really my key points for today. Uh, production shortfalls in 2020 and 2021 uh, globally, not just here in the United States, but globally, really elevated the price for our grain crops and kept us there. Now, why do I make this emphasis that it was that it was shortfalls globally? There's two ways to increase crop prices. The first way is a supply shortfall, whether that's weather-related or whether that's production-induced uh, by lower acreage. The second way is to increase demand, right? And we've certainly had both of those over the last couple of years. The reason I want to make the distinction today is there is a lot of talk about a new demand source, primarily from the Chinese market, into, into buying corn, buying free feed grains uh, to feed their growing pork industry, a recovering pork industry, right? And it was often compared back to the USSR back in the late 70s and the Great Grain Robbery, right? And I, I used to make the joke, you know, there's, there's a difference between those two countries. Russia will just flat out lie to you. China just doesn't know. Um, and they don't know what type of grain they have on hand. Um, the grain they do have is likely in small pockets around their country, and it's hard to get to. It's hard to move. And so as a result of that, we saw huge amounts of grain exports, specifically corn, a lot of grain sorghum, over the last two years into the Chinese market, right? This year, fast forward to this year, we really haven't seen that export potential hold. Um, they haven't used as much of our grain. They certainly haven't imported as much from the world market. So that's a challenge. Right? And that's, that's why I break this down, that shortfalls globally led to this, even though we had almost record production here in the United States last year. Smaller stocks increase the potential for prices, but they also increase volatility. And I'll show you this here in just a second. Um, it's a chart Chris kind of showed earlier, a very similar chart. We've certainly seen some wild price swings. Um, soybeans was up 40 cents when I looked earlier, um, but we're down a dollar just over the last four trading days on soybean markets. Is that going to continue, or are we going to see it go back? Well, we've certainly seen these waves. Again, I'll show you that here in a second. One of my big concerns um, is this concept of peak acreage here in the United States. 
Certainly, we're seeing price signals to increase production, to encourage innovation, encourage additional production to come on the market globally. Um, but what we're finding out is we're having challenges meeting those production expectations here in the United States for a number of reasons. Um, one of the things that I'm very optimistic about, and I was going to talk about, but they talked about cover crests, or it's the, the cover crop, it's a penny crest crop, right? If we look at our demand for, for oil, vegetable oil in general, um, the ability to grow penny crest as a vegetable oil product and use it as a cover crop, I think, has great promise for us here in the United States. But that's a challenge for us that a lot of our competitors don't have. Um, Brazil continues to increase acres. If you look at their production estimates and our forecast for next year, and we've got Brazilian acreage increasing almost 8% year over year, right? They're able to continue to increase and take advantage of some of those higher prices that we just can't. In the short run, demand for grain and oil seeds is soft, but I'm, I'm relatively optimistic going forward. Why is grain and oil seed you know, demand soft at the moment? Well, Chris talked about the strong dollar. It's certainly starting to impact our, our sales and our export potential to some of our global competitors. For those of you that follow grain export sales, uh, the last five weeks, we've seen four weeks out of the five of more net cancellations of soybeans than we have additional sales, right? So that's, that's weighing on our export potential. On the corn side, the fears of recession are limiting the, the consumption of gasoline. And if there's one thing that drives ethanol consumption more than anything, it's gasoline consumption. And we've certainly seen two brutal weeks the last two weeks of gasoline consumption here in the United States, which has lowered our ability to, to uh, consume ethanol. So we've seen ethanol stocks increase, weighing on ethanol price and slowing down production of that product as well. However, I'm relatively bullish. After all that negative news, I'm relatively <laughs> bullish in commodity markets over the next two to three years. Um, I do believe that some of the, the interest and investment that we're seeing in the renewable diesel space is going to come online and bring added demand for our, for our oil seeds and vegetable oil products. Um, when I look at the grain side, I do believe there's great potential to export ethanol. Uh, Chris mentioned uh, the high national gas prices in, in Europe. One of the things that high natural gas prices have done in Europe is increase fertilizer price. The other is increase the price to produce biofuels, specifically ethanol in the European market. Um, they've cut way back on ethanol production, and it's allowed us the opportunity to find additional markets for ethanol exports. And I think that, that leads us to a, a good position moving forward um, in, in that market as well. So um, Chris showed a version of this slide earlier. By the way, we talk a lot to each other, so it's amazing how our stories just kind of start morphing together. But you know, my slide here basically makes the point that we've reached a new plateau um, in terms of long-run corn and soybean prices. Some of you have probably remembered some of the other golden ages of commodity markets back in the 1970s. Um, certainly, we saw an, an increase in, in market potential back in the 2005 to 2010 period as ethanol production was coming on board. But what it does is it increases our, our cost side of the equation to a point where $4 cash corn or $3.50 cash corn going forward is not going to have the same impact that it did you know, five years ago. Our long-run cost of production has increased, and thus, you know, even though we see chances for $4.50 corn, it's not going to have the same you know, enjoyment and excitement as what it would if we'd had 450 cash corn three years ago. The other thing I want to point out here is prior to 2020, you know, even though we were facing large market movers in our commodity markets, we had the trade spat in 2018 and we had COVID in 2020, you really can't notice them all that much in that graph, right? They're there, 
And we thought they were big at the time, but look at the volatility we're experiencing on the back end of this. Moving $2 you know, position limits in, in soybeans within a couple of weeks and then and back the other direction. So if I had advice to you as a commodity you know, broker, uh, or you know, if you were out there thinking about what should I do with a great marketing plan, you know, sell some of these rallies. These are the opportunities where when corn goes up, soybeans goes up, it's the opportunity to sell into that market. If you're a livestock producer, this slide probably gives you a lot of heartache and a lot of heartburn, right? Because it certainly means higher costs for, for your feed animals as we go forward. Second thing, um, and I talked about production shortfalls globally, we took 1.2 billion bushels out of the South American soybean market. Uh, there's two major producers of soybeans on the globe. It's the United States and then South America. Those are our two major soybean growing regions. We took 1.2 billion bushels out of that South American market, largely due to yield. Uh, it was a case, it was a, you know, a story of two different regions. The northern region of Brazil was too wet. It kept raining, it led to a lot of disease pressure, a lot of low quality soybeans. It was too hot and dry in the southern part of the country and it led to some of that increase uh, or decreased yield. But if you look out, right, our expectation for next year is 8% increase in planted acreage for corn and soybeans across the board. If we return to normal yields in South America, we're gonna have enough production out of that region really to meet the needs of the globe, right? So one of my big concerns, I think, as we look ahead, and I'll close with this at the end, 2022, yeah, fertilizer and input prices were high, but we had opportunities to sell at relatively high prices for corn and soybeans. I'm not so sure we're gonna have that picture in 2023. I think we could be facing higher cost with quite a bit lower commodity grain prices as we look ahead. So I'm very concerned about a price squeeze as we look ahead to 2023. Second thing is, is geopolitical tensions globally. I'm gonna talk about two of them here in just a second. Uh, the first one being Ukraine and Russia. Certainly had an impact because Ukraine serves as the, you know, the grain belt or the, the breadbasket of the European Union and, and of Asia. They certainly represent about 25% of global feed grain exports. So a major market. You know, truthfully told, I, I have no idea how this is going to turn out. But I can tell you, these are kind of some of my bare basic expectations as we look ahead, right? Production shortfalls will happen. A uh, couple of things. Fertilizer increased drastically for them. Uh, second thing, access to credit. They're very tied to the Russian banking market. The European Union, the United States all put sanctions on the Russian banking market. It prevented their producers from being able to access credit um, to put in a crop. So those are challenges facing that, but certainly we've seen some of the export potential uh, being diminished as a, as a result of that and led to higher prices here in the United States. This deal, this export deal that we've seen brokered here over the last couple of weeks that has allowed product to move out of the country into other regions, I think has promise. Um, and certainly we'll see grain move. That's what's led to some of our deterioration in crop prices here the last week. Um, but does that hold? I have no idea um, in terms of if it holds or not. I'm certainly optimistic about as we go forward. The one thing that isn't talked about a lot is how big of an, of an exporter Ukraine is of sunflower oil. They produce and export 78% of the world's exportable sunflower oil products. Now why is that important? Sunflower oil fits into the larger vegetable oil complex. Soybean oil, sunflower oil, cottonseed oil, corn oil, canola oil, right? All fit into that mix. And so the ability or lack of ability to export sunflower oil in that region has led at the time to drastically higher prices of vegetable oil. And certainly it was a part of a, you know, almost a perfect storm, if you will. Wheat production of soybeans in South America, wheat canola production here in the United States, sunflower oil restrictions out of Ukraine, palm oil restrictions out of Indonesia, all led to this huge increase in soybean oil, vegetable oil complex, 
Um, and we had all these cries for food inflation, right? That this is what's driving food inflation here in the United States. We had politicians across the board uh, coming up with all sorts of policies in terms of how do we increase acres? How do we get more acres into production in the United States to fight some of these pressures, right? But at the end of the day, right, we actually decreased acres here in the United States. Even with high prices and all these calls to subsidize double cropping, to give higher loan rates uh, for, for crops that are gonna go through the marketing loan program, and at the end, we, we decreased actual planted acreage here in the United States, 900,000 acres. This is my limitation concern in terms of are we at peak acreage here in the United States. And I think that's something that the innovators from, from BioSTL, I think, are, I talked about a little bit earlier. When we look at where a lot of those acres came out of the picture, um, huge reductions in North Dakota. Um, again, I think the prevent plant program uh, for crop insurance is something that will have to be looked at eventually um, if we start getting concerned about how do we keep acres in production in the long run. So I've got a couple other things I want to talk about, but here's the crop risk I see going forward. First and foremost, weather is always a risk. Um, 2021 probably doesn't pop up on anybody's radar. Uh, for being a big weather risk year. But we certainly had some major events, uh, the winter storm in Texas reducing fertilizer production, the hurricane that hit the Gulf reducing oil production and, and also propping up natural gas prices. The second thing is these geopolitical tensions. I've already talked about the conflict in Ukraine, but my second black swan that I've had on my, my slides for about a year and a half now is this whole U.S.-Chinese-Taiwan relations. And we certainly saw it play out uh, this week uh, when Nancy Pelosi made a visit to Taiwan. So far, China and the United States have not had any retaliatory actions against each other as a result of that visit, but China has already started to punish Taiwan for that visit. And if that continues to spill up, folks, China is a major buyer of our product. How much of our soybean exports do they represent? Anybody know? You've probably heard it. It's about 60% of our soybean exports are Chinese buyers, right? Half of our soybeans are exported. So that means one in every three rows of soybeans goes into the Chinese market, and that's a big deal. The, the third thing is this whole U.S.-Chinese trade deal, right? We had this deal three years ago. Um, it never fulfilled or lived up to its promises, so it's just kind of hanging out there in the whim as to, like, okay, or someday are we going to be serious about it? If we are serious about it, what's that mean to our export potential? And then are we just going to let them get away with it, right? Like, that's the challenge that's being faced as we move forward. And then supply chain issues. Uh, Chris talked a lot about you know, some of the challenges with, uh, with fertilizer and barges. Um, in my line of work in grains, it's all rail-based, rail car-based. I was with ADM a couple of weeks ago, their main transportation division, and they told me, they said, we, have, we had absolutely no incentive to keep rail cars. Freight rates were low from 2012 all the way to 18. There was no incentive to build rail cars, so we stretched out those usable lifespans for, for you know, three years longer than what we probably should have. And then we had the trade spat that reduced exports, and then we had COVID that reduced transportation. So, and then during that time, steel prices went through the roof, and that scrap metal just basically became free money on our balance sheet. Well, now we're on the backside of that, and we can't afford to build new rail cars, right? So I think this fall... You know, we're going to be dealing with, with transportation rates to move grain throughout the United States that are just going to be huge. And as a result, that's going to impact basis at the producer level. That's, that's how we calculate some of these basal levels. So even though we have strong basis now, historically ba strong basis for corn and soybeans now, I'm not convinced it's going to stay around um, because of these higher freight rates as we look ahead. 
Uh, and then the other thing is this crop protection regulation. And I'm not going to talk a lot about that because the Farm Bureau's got more stuff to talk about that on that. But certainly it's a thing that when I talk about you know, putting in a crop and thinking about how we protect it uh, from a chemical or pesticide uh, standpoint, it becomes an issue. Labor is something that's always on my mind. Um, I spend more time nowadays talking about labor because everybody I work with is saying we need labor. We need more people. The next question is, well, where did all these people go, right? And I think that's the harder challenge. You know, where did they all go? Most of the companies and most of the, you know, in terms of rail, uh, whether it's rail, whether it's fertilizer, whether it's seed, most of them will tell me it was their retirees that left, right? Their retirement accounts were going up, so they had financial incentive to retire early. They had the uncertainty of a pandemic, a health scare that also encouraged them to retire early. And most of them had value in their houses. Because if you haven't followed the housing market over the last couple of years, housing prices have just shot up. And what we know about folks, most of the time, not in agriculture, but in the broader scheme, when people retire, the first thing they do is they sell their house and they move somewhere warmer or closer to grandkids, right? So they had every incentive to get out of the workforce at the top end. Now, I usually have a joke. This gets me in trouble with most audiences. But you've probably noticed that I'm, I'm young, uh, for, for working in this space. And so I usually say that, I usually make the comment, it's not the millennials that don't want to work, it's the boomers that don't want to work. <laughs> Sometimes I get booed for saying that. But most of the companies I work with, they're actively trying to figure out how to bring their retirees back into the fold, right? However, this is not a problem that will be fixed easily, right? Labor is not a thing where you flip a switch. There is no policy switch to flip on labor as we move ahead. And then logistics. I've talked about this a little bit already, but certainly I, I, I already see it coming. Um, rail rates are going to be challenged. Uh, we've got you know, um, a union strike happening in Canada again that's going to continue to put pressure on our rail. Um, trucks and finding access to truckers continues to be a problem. It's going to continue to weigh on our basis. So before I wrap up and turn this over to Scott, I just got a couple of brief comments about corn and soybeans as we look ahead. One, on the corn side, exports, exports, exports. When I talk with the Feed and Grain, grain Associates, when I talk with the U.S. corn growers, the thing they're most interested in outside of the regulatory space is how do we increase exports, both for all the byproducts but even for raw corn. Because all the growth that we're seeing in this space is all coming um, external to the United States. And so how do we encourage buyers? How do we get people interested in our product? And I think we will see more people interested in buying U.S. corn. As a result, if you look into our forecast period, most of the growth I have in corn or consumption is coming in that export picture. When we talk about biofuels, I know this is a big topic, and certainly this is taking policy as is today, but there's just not a lot of growth in biofuels. We've largely hit our ceiling. We've hit our limit in terms of ethanol consumption. In fact, ethanol consumption in the United States will be flat to slightly down as we look ahead. Right? We all drive more fuel-efficient vehicles than we used to. Frankly, we're not driving as much as we used to. I was in California three weeks ago, and I was surprised at how clean the free, or clear the freeways were. Right? We're not driving as much as a result of that. Um, However, export potential for ethanol is there, and we can pick up some additional export markets. We're hosting a group from Colombia here in a month or so. They're coming up here to talk about um, potential for U.S. ethanol consumption um, out of that market. So as I look ahead at the prices, um, certainly I expect them to come down uh, from, from where we are now. A um, couple of reasons for that. One, uh, it is a supply-driven market to where production shortfalls have led to these increases. But I don't see us going all the way back down to where we were. 
Why? Because we've increased the cost structure, right? And we just can't produce at lower levels than the cost structure broadly across the, the country. Now, certainly the graph on the left shows you know, many different outcomes uh, for, for corn markets. This is kind of what Chris was talking about earlier in terms of percentages and assigning percentages to different outcomes. Uh, at FAPRI, we run our models 500 different times to take into account some of that variability. And I have the percentage breakdowns um, in the back end of the presentation if anybody wants them. When I look at soybeans, um, the big driver in soybeans is this whole revolution around oil, vegetable oil. Re renewable diesel is coming onto the market. And if you haven't heard about renewable diesel, um, the best way I can explain it is it has the exact same chemical makeup as regular diesel. There's a couple of pros to that. One, you can pump it right into the pipeline and you don't have to worry about other types of transportation costs. The second pro of that is it uses soybean oil. More globally, palm oil will probably be very competitive, but here in the United States, soybean oil is probably going to be our, our dominant source of that. However, it's very different than what we saw in other renewable energy booms. When the ethanol market came in, and frankly, when the biodiesel market came in, those were largely driven by producer co-ops helping to expand that. This is being driven by oil companies, right? They're recognizing that this is a way to help meet clean energy standards, and they're very invested. Why does this matter to you all here in Missouri? Well, where they're building these facilities are where soybeans are grown, where natural gas is plenty, and where they have pipelines, which is primarily in the Upper Plains, North Dakota, South Dakota, Western Minnesota, and Canada, right? If you think about what that means for our trade flows, most of our soybeans that leave this country out of the Pacific Northwest come out of that region, they go to China, right? So if those products are now being used for soybean, or soybean oil and crush, there's going to be added export potential for us here in Missouri. Now, that can be seen as good and bad. For those of you that live in the boot hill, if you think you have sporadic basis now, wait till these shifts start happening, right? It's going to be very sporadic in terms of basis moves and spreads as we look ahead. My price outlook for soybeans is similar to corn, uh, coming down from, from highs, um, but certainly holding on to, to greater potential as we look ahead, largely due to this increase in soybean oil values as a percentage of the value of soybean. And so um, certainly, certainly, I think, you know, maybe something that, that keeps soybean prices elevated a little bit higher than corn over the long run. So in summary, two large disruptions have large, led to a lot of this price rally, right? Shortfalls globally and then a war or conflict in Ukraine. Macroeconomic indicators are important. Um, they're very important, especially to agriculture. Labor continues to be a challenge. It's not something that'll be uh, you know, fixed quickly. There's just not a lot of levers. Certainly higher interest rates change our environment as well as we look ahead. Input costs are high. and My prediction is they'll stay high. Chris kind of alluded to that today. I know they've come down some, uh, but I certainly think we're going to be back there here in a couple of months. Uh, and then demand for U.S. commodities remains intact, even though we're seeing weaker demand at the moment. Uh, the long-run fundamentals for U.S. grain crops and oil seeds is there. People want your product. They want your product. But in the meantime, we've got, we've got some challenges with a stronger dollar as we move ahead. So um, even with higher expenses, I expect producers to have a decent year, crop producers to have a decent year in 2020, but I am concerned about a price cross squeeze as we look ahead to 2023. And with that, uh, just a plug, Scott and I do a radio program. I do commodity market, grain markets every Tuesday. Scott does livestock markets every Saturday, Saturday morning. Um, and we're always happy to have people join in and listen to that as we go ahead. So with that, um, that's my presentation. Um, we'll do questions afterwards, right?
All right, do you want me to introduce Scott? Please let me introduce Scott. All right, so I have the pleasure of introducing our next speaker. Um, the, only, the only relationship Davin didn't mention was one of grandfather, grandpappy. Um, Scott is not my grandpa, but certainly I like to give him you know, credit for that. Um, but Scott's an economist at the University of Missouri. It was one of the inspirations for me to come back to the university. I'm very excited to have him on board, and uh, certainly he does a lot of things for us in the state, and we're certainly appreciative. So with that, Scott Brown. I was going to sit up here and say, I don't know who that guy is that just talked to you. Uh, he's no relation to me. I don't. I think he changed his last name to Brown, as a matter of fact. Uh, he, he does look like he's my older brother. <laughs> all right, just making sure we're all on the same page. So, Ben, I appreciate that you took my time and your time presenting here this afternoon because we're now to the Q&A portion of this uh, session. I have to give him a hard time for taking way too long in your 15 minutes. All right, so I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes, and so probably not going to get to all the slides here, but, but, but a few things that are on top of my mind for, for you to think about. So I'm, I'm gonna go straight to, to a few slides. So number one, what concerns me? What are the things out there that I'm worried about? Those of you that have seen me present know I use this slide a lot ever since COVID. So the green line being disposable income. How much money do I have in my pocket? The black line being expenditures. Think of it as expenditures. How much am I spending? So 2022, we talk about the recession word often, right? So it's one of the concerns I have. If the economy slows to the point that we have a recession, what's that mean for ag products? What, what's it mean for meat products? Be paying attention to that. Number two, look ahead at 2023. So projections right now say disposable income returns to, to fairly good levels next year, but also this notion that Expenditures continue to grow. How does that happen? So consumers take on more debt. Is there ever a point in time where they can't take on more debt? How does that affect mean expenditures? This slide matters in my book. I don't know exactly how it plays out, but it's one I'm watching because we need strong meat demand going forward. There are plenty of headlines about what? Inflation, right? Right, so food inflation is part of that story. We continue to push fairly high prices at consumers. I, I will remind us, so beef prices here for a minute. I, although beef prices have been coming down, at least the rate of growth, sorry, the rate of growth has been coming down, I think we're headed for some pretty high beef prices in late 2023, by the way. All right, so, so there, there may be a little catch our breath here, but we're not we're not done pushing higher prices at consumers. However, there's some good deals here. Alright? My my point here with the next slide that I that I want to slowly show you. Alright, so we have multiple ways to look at retail prices. Bureau of Labor Statistics, when you get the CPI for food numbers, that's Bureau of Labor Statistics. A a pork chop price, all right? So the black line is a boneless. Unfortunately, the Ag Marketing Service also does pork chops. It's a, it's a bone-in price, so I've got a little bit of, of difference in terms of the product. But you notice how much cheaper that gold line is relative to the black line? There are some good deals out there. 
BLS does not incorporate specials in the prices that they report. AMS, on the other hand, those specials are raised. How much featuring is being done? I just say there are some good deals. Make sure that we are telling the story there are some good deals out there as we move ahead. So drought's a problem, right? Drought's a problem for us in Missouri. Drought's certainly a, a problem. All right, so I'll just remind you, the black line that's smooth, that's straight, that's the long-run D1 or worse drought designation. You see how much lower that is than where the red line is today? Now, who's, who's the problem here, all right? So I go Texas and Oklahoma, which I always say, as much as I don't want Texas and Oklahoma to have drought conditions, I'd much rather them be in Texas and Oklahoma than Missouri, all right? Unfortunately, we've had some pretty serious dry weather in Missouri of late. Even though that black bar for Missouri, the third largest beef cow state, is fairly low, I know there are problems out there. The reason I talk about this is we've got to figure out how to best get through this because I think there are some great opportunities coming for us in cattle markets. I'm going to skip a little bit. In terms of inventory, we may be talking about beef cow inventory in this country that rivals where we were in 2014. I often say even Scott Brown could have been a cattle producer in 2014 and made money. So we may have those opportunities coming again in front of us. Making sure we get through what's a very terrible situation in some parts of the state, I think, uh, is important as we look ahead. I'm going to stop and open for questions, so I leave us 10 minutes for questions after this slide. Now, we're not going to fix cattle markets overnight, so I'm not talking next 60 days here. But you notice USDA's projection for beef production in 2023. So that number is correct. They're currently saying a 7% decline in beef production in 2023 relative to 2022. If that happens, there are some opportunities for much higher cattle prices. Now, I don't want to overstate those opportunities, but I also don't want to leave you that there isn't some potential positives coming. The problem is how do we survive, those of us that don't have enough hay or pasture to get through, how do we survive? And I just go, I want you to think very hard about what your long-term strategy is, not just the short-term. Because if that plays out, we haven't seen a 7% cut. I, I looked at the data and guess what? The last time we saw it was when? 2014. Before that, 2004. We don't see those cuts so that magnitude happened very often. Uh, and, and again, I'll say 2014 was a pretty good year. All right. Um, to, to hogs, I see a lot of sideways going on in hogs. For those of you in the room that are dairy producers, I, I will say I am a little worried what I see out of current data. We're building cow, dairy cow inventory in the country. We are seeing international dairy product prices that are starting to slide. Cheese has been sliding for a few weeks. Uh, we're now starting to see some of the other products as well slide. As, as Ben correctly identified, anytime we want to talk about what's happening in the rest of the world, what country should we say first? China, all right? 
China matters here in terms of, of dairy demand as well. So, so those are some of the things that I, I see as I look ahead. I, I see some opportunities in coming, uh, but I also say it's hard for me to know anymore what I think the long-term path looks like. I will close by being an economist for a minute with you. I feel like demand and supply of our ag commodities are becoming more inelastic. All right, you may go, what in the world did he just say? All right, so the, the, the bottom line of that is more variability ahead. When those supply and demand curves stand more straight up and down, it means more price volatility, not less price volatility. You remember the old extension adage, the cure for high prices is? So why did we say that? Because when prices were too high, producers expanded to the point where we got low prices, which meant that some producers then did what? Got out of the business. I say it's much tougher to get folks to get out of the business as we've gotten larger. All right? So just remind yourself that more price volatility ahead is, is likely the case. All right, so I'm going to let Ben come back up, but don't ask him any questions since he took all the time this afternoon. What questions do you all have for us? Yes. This question is for you because we're not going to give you any <laughs> So you were talking about the 7% cut in cow numbers. Do you feel or do you see any uh, anywhere that this Beyond Meat or these synthetic meat or meat alternatives are going to dive in here and try to make up some of this 7% or, you know, I mean, I, I'm in the meat business. I, I, I was in a convenience store the other day where they had Beyond Meat jerky. And I had to ask the manager, I said to him, I go, this Beyond Meat jerky, I go, does it sell? And he goes, unbelievably, yes. He goes, quite a bit. And I, I was shocked. But but I'm, I'm pretty naive to it, I'll admit it. I don't like it. I don't believe in it. And I'm just wondering whether or not, as our numbers go down and volatility um, continues, are they going to be able to keep up with the standard and fill any holes, or should we be talking? Are we worried about that? Thank you. And don't let him answer. Yep. No. No. Uh, no answers from Ben for sure. So I, I, I will. I will say I'm not too concerned about the Beyond Meat alternatives that are out there. Why do I say that? To, to me, those that want those non-meat alternatives are probably vegans anyway. So they likely aren't consuming meat t today as, uh, at all. However. Let me run a scenario by you. We get really tight on beef supplies. What happens to grind ground beef prices? They go much higher. Well, maybe there's a nice blend of these non-meat products with beef. What if consumers found some preference for that blend? So I won't say there couldn't be problems in front of us, but I view the consumer segment that wants that Beyond Meat product mm -hmm. tends not, not to be a segment that's going to consume beef anyway. More and more, though, technology is going to come along that makes these products look a lot closer. So I didn't say not to worry about this long term. I just don't see in this current downturn that I think happens in 23 and 24, we're going to see a lot of that replaced by non-meat products. Good question, though. Yes? How much of the packing industry issues, uh, I'm sorry, how much of the packing issue 
in the industry has affected um, the, the, any of the cattle or livestock uh, sales and, and what have you? Yes, all right, so the question, all right. So I was trying to avoid all of this about packing uh, the discussion, but I'll jump right in, all right? So, because y'all are gonna have your own opinion, all right? So, so number one, I'll say, um, we, we, we're bringing a lot of the cattle to market. It put packers in a very good position. Do I think packers take advantage of that when they can? All right, thank you. I was like, come on now, I know this audience well enough. All right, so, so I go, yes, now. I think it's already corrected. You look at farm the wholesale margins that we have today, they're narrowing. Packers know what's coming. But by the way, I will say, we're gonna build capacity going forward. All right, AFG coming here to Missouri, I think it's a great opportunity. That's more shackle space, less of a problem going forward. South Dakota, I keep hearing about that big investment that might happen there, more shackle space. Um, so I think it's been self-correcting. Do I think that perhaps in 2021 we would have had more cattle had we not had we had more capacity? Perhaps because those margins got very wide. Um, but, but I do think they've, they've corrected or are correcting, I should say. And going forward with that, uh, I because I've noticed that Farm Bureau has helped push the consumer to the actual farmer to the to the butcher shops uh, do you see that as a a way that that has helped correct that issue so marginally now let, let me let me say the positive for those of you that are in the direct <coughs> consumer business these days that's all great I go value-added opportunity to add more dollars Let's make sure we're getting a premium for that product. That's where the win is by this idea of I'm gonna provide local products uh, to, to folks that, that want them. Um, so, so I think marginally has it helped the, the, the margin that we've seen traditionally a little bit. But we're not slaughtering that many cattle through that process. I just go it's a different market, so it's a niche where we know we have consumers out there that wanna know more about their local product, where it came from. Let's take advantage of that, and let's push those value-added propositions to help us in the cattle industry. Yes? Talk to us more about beef exports and how important they are. Yeah, so beef exports was a question uh, Tracy threw to me, right, beef in particular. So who's been important for beef exports? China. Yeah, all right, so get used to saying China anytime we talk exports. So $950 million a month of beef leaving the United States. That's critical. We need that to grow. Now, if we want that to keep growing, what countries are we going to aim to next? So I kind of go, if you've been looking at weekly exports to China, what have they been doing? Similar to what we saw in pork where Man, they took off, but then all of a sudden they got flat. I, I go, I see the same thing starting to happen in beef. So we got the growth, and now we're just kind of, we got some new market into China, but now it's been flat for a period of time. That's all good, but now we need to grow the next place. Uh, there are a lot of other countries that probably don't know much about how good U.S. beef can be for them. 
and we've got to grow those markets. So sometimes I will say to the checkoff dollars that you might be paying, the, the investment to try to grow those markets in the rest of the world is very, very good because if you only depend on one market for exporting your product to, is there a risk to that strategy? Did the Chinese not show us in soybeans that risk? Um, and, and, and so I say, grow those markets. We want to be uh, exporting to a number of countries around the world. The more countries we can export to, the less risk we have of playing in international markets. We have time for one more question. Davin says it has to be quick, though, because he's going back up here. Yes? I wish I knew the answer to that question. I ask, my, I ask myself that all the time. I don't want to give up on China, by the way. So although they flattened out, I think there's some opportunity to still grow that market in front of us. Uh, when it's 1.3, 1.4 billion people, uh, there, there's still, a, I think, a pretty healthy appetite. Uh, I, I think for us in the beef markets, we need to find the higher income earners around the globe that want more of a Western diet. Um, Asia tends to be the, the region that I'm going to point to for those opportunities. There will probably be another China win, right? So it's going to be a lot of smaller countries that we can get some wins from, uh, I, I think, going forward. So I, I will close by, when you look at total imports of beef and you look about the last six years, all right, we sometimes might immediately go Japan, South Korea, as, as important markets, you realize those markets have been fairly flat in terms of their total imports, right? Not just what they took from us, but total imports. The only growth has been China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. All right, so I put Hong Kong and Taiwan together because those products tend to go to China anyway. So China has been the country that's really grown the last six years. Now we gotta figure out how to get the rest of Asia, I think, to grow that rest of everybody else it's a big number, it's just been flat, no growth. So I think there's our opportunity to grow it in front of us. So I appreciate the chance to visit with you all. Ben, I'm glad to ask you no questions. Uh, if you have anything, I know I'll be in here for a while, Ben's gonna be around for a few minutes. Thanks for the chance to visit with you all this afternoon.